Good morning, ladies. Good morning. Thank you very much. I prefer good morning, teacher, but that's okay. <laughs> I'm just kidding. You can all, though, uh, I got uh, probably a dozen hugs yesterday from one of my first graders that was at a football game I went to. And uh, so you can feel free to give me hugs like my little kids do at school. I love that. It was so funny. He goes, and six hugs. <laughs> he kept counting them. I was like, good, you're learning to count by hugging me. Do you have any questions today before we start? Yes, Diane. So if you are neutral, are you an antichrist? Um, wow. I mean, that's who came up with that question. That's wonderful. That's somebody's thinking. Uh, did you come up with that question? Well, yeah, and, and John does present it, I'm, and, and we are going to talk about this, that there are really only two choices. If you don't love God, then you do love the world. By default, you love the world. But John is speaking primarily about those who teach a false gospel, that teach. And so, I, I mean, I would tend for, toward there's a difference between uh, an antichrist, uh, someone who is opposed to Christ or whose teaching is opposed to Christ. Uh, and someone who is, you know, just a regular Joe and, and doesn't believe in Jesus. Um, I, I mean, I'm not going to die on that hill, um, <laughs> theologically. Uh, but it, it seems to me like he is specifically talking about teachers in this. And, and so I would, I would lean toward that. But that's a, that's a great question. Any other questions? Yes, Kate. Right. Yeah, that was a really hard question, wasn't it? Yeah, I had trouble with that one, too. <laughs> Till Dr. Gary Burge helped me out. So uh, I, I, will, I will touch on, on that. Yeah, yeah. Uh, but we will, we will talk about that. Okay, any other questions? Okay, let's pray. Father God, thank you so much uh, for today, for your word, for your truth. Um, Father, I pray that you would sear it into our hearts, into our minds, uh, Father, and that we would understand the privilege we have to be known by you and to know you. I pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, these first verses, uh, the verses 12 through 17, there they are, that's 12 through 14, but, but we'll start by talking a little bit about 12 through 17, or kind of a parenthesis in John's argument. Are you like the cafe over there, Carrie and Don? You're like the, yeah, that's great. They're, they're in the cafe. Uh, and they know I can't spit that far, so that's good. Um, so it's kind of a parenthesis in his argument. He's going to take a time out, and the, the purpose of this sort of parenthesis is to reassure his readers about their own faith. Because John has just written some, some pretty harsh things. Uh, not necessarily to them, yes, to them, but not necessarily about them. And he's about to say, as you found out, I mean, you call somebody an antichrist. I mean, that, that's pretty strong. He's about to write even harsher things. So he wants to pause here and reassure and exhort his readers to, to reassure them in their faith and exhort them in their faith. And in verses 15 through 17, he's going to talk about there's, there are two fronts, what we just sort of 
uh, spoke about in your questions, that there are really only two fronts, the world, meaning the created order in rebellion to God, and the church, that those who are in relationship with God through Jesus Christ. And those are the only two sides that there are, and everybody is on one of those. So John's, John's desire here is that his readers would be equipped, and we're going to see that, how he's equipping them, so that they might not fall for the lies or the ways of the world. And so he is going to equip them. And he's going to begin in this, this sort of this poetry, I guess. If you hated your poetry unit in, in English, uh, you might have skipped over this. But, but almost a poetic way of talking to both children and others in his church. And we'll talk all about who, who are these designated people. He begins at uh, verse 12 saying, I am writing to you, dear children, because your sins have been forgiven on account of his name. I am writing to you, fathers, because you know him who is from the beginning. I am writing to you, young men, because you have overcome the evil one. I write to you, dear children, because you know the Father. I write to you, fathers, because you know him who is from the beginning. I write to you, young men, because you are strong in, and the word of God lives in you, and you have overcome the evil one. So there, this, this passage raises a lot of questions about what it means. Is John just repeating himself here? Uh, is this some sort of literary device? Or does it have it a, a purpose apart from that? And what do the titles mean? What does he mean when he writes dear children? What does he mean when he writes fathers? What does he mean when he writes young men? So let's start with something about which almost everyone agrees. Uh, and that is the meaning of dear children. When he says in the first part of of 12, I'm writing to you, dear children, and then when he says in the last part of verse 13, or, or the beginning part, I'm sorry, of verse 14, I write to you, dear children, who is he, who does he mean by dear children? Well, first of all, that word, once again, in verse 12, is technia that we saw last week. It actually is a different word meaning the same thing in verse 14, but he, he means the same thing. He's just trying to change it up a little, I think, for literary reasons. Um, but who is this then? Who are the dear children uh, to whom he writes? Because um, this is commonly how John addressed people in his church uh, and referred to his readers that, who were members of his churches, and because he says their sins are forgiven, which is something that is true of all believers, and because if he were talking about actual children, like a subgroup within the church, he would put them last instead of first, uh, because that would have been the social convention. Because of all those things, I believe that the dear children are all members of his church. So he's, he's writing this to everyone, to all uh, the believers in his churches. Uh, and that's who are, the dear children are. And he says, I write this to you because you have been forgiven on account of his name. Whose name? Jesus' name. You've been forgiven on account of Jesus' name. And to do something on account of a person's name means to do something because of that person. So we have been forgiven because of Jesus, because he is our atoning sacrifice, we have forgiveness. Now, how would this have given them reassurance then? How would this, because remember, his purpose is to reassure them. So how would this have reassured his readers? Well, first of all, it reassures them of their place in the family of God. It reassures them uh, that they are members of God's household, that they are God's children, and he is their father. 
It would reassure them that their sins have been forgiven. The thing that's interesting about that is that that is in the per perfect tense, which means it's a completed thing. It's done. It never needs to be done again. It is why Jesus said on the cross, it is finished. It's completed. It's done. Your sins, past, present, and future, have been forgiven. That's reassuring. Um, and, and then it would have reassured them that they, they have known the Father again, perfect tense. It's done. Doesn't matter how far you think you are from God, you still know him. Uh, he is still right there. You still have that relationship with him. It is a result of our redemption. This is a unique privilege that we have as believers, that we have known God, the creator of the universe, not only knows and loves us, we have uh, the unique privilege of knowing God. I was reading uh, on Sunday an article by um, Dr. David Wilkinson, who oddly enough is an astrophysicist, but you know, like a big bang guy. You know, not, not a big bang guy, I mean the TV show, um, which is weird because I'm gonna talk about TV shows in a little bit. But anyway, uh, <laughs> he's, you know, he's an astrophysicist, but he's a believer and he believes in creation and that's what the article is about. And in that uh, article on creation, he talked about what it means to be made in God's image. And I've always just been kind of like, I got nothing on that. I mean, it's a great thing, obviously, because, woo, we're made in God's image. This just rocked my world, what he said about what it means to be made in God's image. In the language and context of the ancient Near East, the concept of image refers less to characteristic features of humanity than its distinctive place within the created order. Bearing God's image is about relationship with God more than any specific human attribute or pattern of behavior. What he's saying here is being made in God's image means that we have a unique privilege, that we are in relationship, or, or if we're not believers, have available to us to become in relationship with the creator of the universe. I love my dog, but he doesn't have that privilege. I have that privilege to be in relationship. Some of you are going, well, now wait a minute, you don't know my dog. Uh, <laughs> That is a unique privilege, unique to human beings. He is our father, our daddy, and we are his children. There's a song, it's a very, very simple song. Makes me cry every time I hear it. I would sing it for you, but you would all head for the exits. I wish I, wish I would have actually loaded the YouTube video so it could be sung for you. It's a simple song, it's called He Knows My Name. And the reason I cry, and I have, every time I've heard it since February of 2003, is because of the second verse. But let, let, I want to read the lyrics to you. It says, I have a maker. He formed my heart. Before even time began, my life was in his hands. He knows my name. He calls me Amy. He knows my name. He knows my every thought. He sees each tear that falls, and he hears me when I call. And here's the part. It makes me cry. I have a father. He calls me his own. I know he'll never leave me, no matter where I go. Now, some of you knew my earthly father, and almost all of you have heard about my earthly father. Ladies, I had a daddy that gave the most close representation to my heavenly father as any girl could possibly have. And losing him was one of the hardest things of my life. We lost him first to Alzheimer's, but then we lost him to heaven. And I would sing that song, and I would think, 
I have a father. And I would think, no, I don't. And then I would realize, yes, I do. And ladies, whether or not we've had an earthly father who is a good representation of our heavenly father, we all have a heavenly father who knows us intimately and loves us dearly and wants us to know him. That is an incredibly wonderful and unique privilege. And so then he turns and he talks to fathers. While you're all crying, I'm very sorry. <laughs> I didn't mean to do that. Um, and he says, I am writing to you fathers. Who are these fathers? Well, there are two possibilities with that. When he writes to fathers, he could be writing to more mature believers in the church who are possibly older, but not necessarily. So more mature believers is one choice. The second choice would be older people, older men or, or older people who are possibly more mature, but not necessarily. So he says to them, you have known him. And he says, you have known him who was from the beginning. Well, every believer, young or old, immature or uh, mature, has that privilege. But it would seem here, because he says that to the dear children, it would seem here that John is saying that these people have an understanding of God and the things of God that is deeper than others, that is deeper than most. And he says, you have known him who was from the beginning. We see that again. I mean, we've seen that before and we see that again. What does that mean to say in this sense that you have known him who is from the beginning? Well, those who say that, that he's talking about more mature believers, not necessarily older chronologically, but more mature, say that he's talking about Jesus. You have known Jesus who has always been, uh, who, who is from the beginning. In the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. Those who say that he's talking about older believers, not necessarily more mature, say that these are people who knew Jesus when he was on earth. You have known him. You've, you've walked with Jesus when he was on earth. Um, I would lean toward, in fact, I'd lean strongly, probably lean is too soft a word, to this being the fathers being more mature believers, not necessarily older, for two reasons. First of all, we're talking about AD 90 something here, and John lived to be very old, but not a lot of people lived to be as old as John in those days. And so the, the, the possibility that there were people in his church that had actually known Jesus when he was on earth is remote, and it becomes even more remote when you realize these letters were written to F churches in Ephesus, not in Galilee, not even in Jerusalem. So how many really seriously old people could there have been in a church in Ephesus that used to live in Galilee? To me, that's, that's stretching it. I believe when he says, I write to you fathers, he's saying, I'm right to you who are mature in the faith. You members of the church who are mature in the faith. Um, so that means that they, it might mean that they've been following Jesus a long time. It might mean that they're older. Oftentimes, both of those are the case, but I don't think he's talking about um, chronological age. Uh, and this again would be reassuring to the pe these people because these people, these people with spiritual maturity in the church, have an anchor, a deep anchor for their faith, and they understand that their faith is anchored in, histo in the historical gospel. 
They understand that there is real historicity and real truth to the gospel. And this gives them and the church wisdom and gives them a, a steadfast anchor in difficult circumstances, which they're going through. Implicitly, I think John is saying, look, these people, they're a treasury. They're a wealth of spiritual maturity. Glean that from them. Lean on them in your troubles. They will give you perspective. And certainly those who are mature in the faith are able to give us tremendous perspective in times of trouble. Uh, and so I think that's what John is reassuring his readers with. And then in, in the uh, 13b and in 14b, he addresses the young men. And what does young men, who, when he says young men, who are those people? Well, again, you have two choices. Either these are people who are younger in the faith, so they're less mature in the faith, probably younger chronologically, but not necessarily. Or it means those who are younger in age, possibly less mature, but not necessarily. Um, and what he says about them, uh, because, uh, let me back up. Because of my earlier interpretation that fathers are those that are more uh, mature in the faith, I believe that younger men means those who are less mature in the faith, who are newer in the faith, who don't know all of the um, gospel and everything about uh, God's word, about, about Jesus and about God's word uh, that the older, more mature believers do. But he has good words for them nonetheless. He says those who are younger in the faith um, are strong and the word of God lives in them. He's saying they are engaging in the battle of faith. They are zealous for the things of God. And he says they have overcome the evil one, meaning Satan. They have, and it, he doesn't tell them, overcome the evil one. You guys, you guys that are zealous, you guys that are strong in the faith, that are strong in, in, um, in, in your, your uh, zealousness for the faith, go out and overcome the evil one. No, he doesn't say that. He says you already have. You already have overcome him. Actually, Jesus has already overcome him. He has been defeated. It is, again, the perfect tense. It is a done deal. It's a sealed thing that Satan has been defeated. But when? When was Satan defeated? Well, we tend to say that Satan was defeated on the cross, and that is not untrue. But I think, in fact, he was defeated even before that. This is what Dr. Ber Gary Burge says. He says, Satan was found in defeat when at the incarnation his kingdom came under siege. From that point on, there was no doubt. Satan was toast, essentially from that point on. So again, this is reassuring to uh, John's readers that we have the word of God, Jesus, living in us. He is the one. Why are they strong? Because they have the word of God living in them, because we have Jesus living in us. That is our strength. And secondly, they can be reassured because Satan is defeated. We need to live in light of that fact, don't we? I think sometimes we feel defeated. We're not. Satan is. We need not fear him. We need not succumb to him. He knows he's defeated. And we need to live in light of that fact. So young, zealous believers bring vigor to the church. Those of us who are a little, shall I say, longer in the spiritual tooth <laughs> can learn a lot 
from younger believers who are excited. This is, this is part of my own journey. I, I've told you about my best friend Chrissy, who uh, came to Christ a, a number of years ago now. And she tells a story, which just before I tell you the story, let me tell you that this is not how I remember it. I remember it quite differently. And she says that the very first time we ever met, I came bounding up to her and said, Hi, my name's Amy Colliday, and I'm a born-again Christian. Now, that is not how it happened. <laughs> I do remember our first uh, dorm call meeting, not a whole dorm, but our little wing of the dorm meeting. And we were supposed to fill out these surveys. And one of the, one of the survey questions was, what is your faith? And one of the choices was born again. And one of the girls said, what's born again? And another girl said, those are the crazy people. <laughs> and I did say, well, I'm born again, but I don't think I'm crazy. And so I, you know, I put myself out there as a believer. And as I've grown over the last lots of years, since I was 18, uh, I, uh, golly, more than 35 years since I was 18, um, I've become more mature in the faith. But I look back on 17-year-old Amy, 18-year-old Amy, and think, man, I was just willing to tell anybody. Do you know Jesus? Because if you don't know Jesus, let me tell you about him. And that can really turn some people off. But I'd love to recover that sense of excitement about knowing Jesus. Because I remembered at 18 how lost and desperate and lonely and pitiful I was. And you could just maybe chalk that up to teenage angst but I have, a, I have a teenage daughter. They don't, and this is my encouragement to you with young children, they don't all have to be that way. And so I know that it wasn't teenage angst. It was that I didn't know Jesus. And he radically changed my life. In fact, a woman came up to my mother a couple months after I came to know Christ and said, um, what's happened, Amy? She's a completely different person. I used to, when I would give my testimony, show a video of me at, at 15, so you could see I was kind of an it. Uh, I really, I was just this strange, angry person. And you can see it in every pore of my being, this, 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 this wordless video, because it was before there was audio with the video. And you can just see attitude and anger in everything I do. Because people often say to me, you, and my mom would even say that, you weren't that bad, honey. Yes, I was. Yes, I was. And Jesus changed me. And so that zeal for the things of God as young believers uh, is a wonderful, wonderful Thing. So what's being pictured here is this, this community of believers where some are more spiritually mature and wise, and, and others are less spiritually mature but zealous, and each needs the other. We can learn from the other. So if you're a younger believer, uh, younger in the faith, find yourself an older believer and glean on her wisdom. And if you're an older believer, find yourself a younger believer and glean off her excitement for the things of God. It's a very biblical picture, by the way. If you read Titus 2, it talks about that. So now John's going to turn and he's going to discuss um, how we are to live in light of this reassurance, in light of these blessings. How is it that we are to live? And he says this, do not love the world or anything in the world. If anyone loves the world, love for the Father is not in them. For everything in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life comes not from the Father, but from the world. 
The world and its desires pass away, but whoever does the will of God lives forever. So here's, here's the exhortation. Don't love the world. And John gives us here, places before us, two choices. And there are only two. Love the world or love God. There's no middle ground. You can't do both simultaneously. You're either going to love the world or you're going to love God. And the stark reality, and it sounds harsh, but it is exactly what John is saying, is that if we love the world, we don't love God. We can't love God. That is what it says in verse 15. If anyone loves the world, love for the Father is not in that person. Now you notice here a symmetry in, in what John is writing. He says uh, in verse 15, he puts love of the world over and against love uh, of the Father. In verse 16, he puts what comes from the world over and against what comes from the Father. And in verse 17, he, puts, he says that the world passes away, but the one who obeys God remains, abides with him forever. Now let's define a couple things here, because we can look at this and we say, okay, don't love the world. What's the world? What is it I'm not supposed to love? So for our purposes, what John means by the world is the world of sin that stands in aggressive opposition to God. It is the unredeemed world under the control of Satan and in rebellion to God. It and those in it are in darkness and under God's judgment. So don't love those things that are not of God, that come from a heart of rebellion to God and his word and his truth and his commands. But then what does he mean by love? Well, this isn't love like for God so loved the world. Okay, he's not saying love, um, don't love people in the world, don't love people in sin. He's saying don't love the world is, itself. Love in this case is an infatuation with worldly godlessness and sin. It's something that looks at sin and wants to massage it rather than kick it to the curb. Uh, and so such love, John tells us, is incompatible with true love of God, true love for God, not God's love for us, but our love for God. It is a sinful love, and sinful love is selfish, while God's love is selfless. So then he's going to give characteristics of this love, and some people think that the first thing he says, everything of the world, the lust of the flesh, is kind of an overarching um, category, and the other two fit under it. I don't know if that matters as much, although lust of the flesh and lust of the eyes are very similar. But let's talk about first lust of or desire of the flesh. This is not just sexual desire, although it obviously would include that. Include that. It's any sinful desire that draws us away from God. And that would include illegitimate sexual desire, but it would also include greed and lust for money and lust for things and lust for power and uh, gluttony and any number 
of other things would be included in that. And then he says the desire or lust of the eyes, same word. Some, um, some interpretations put a different word there, but it's the same word in the Greek. The desire of the eyes. And it means in part those, who can, those things that can be seen. So this could mean visual lust, looking at someone or something and lusting after it. So it could mean that, but often in scripture, um, the eye is used for any, uh, any, it's used as a metaphor for any corrupting sinful passion. So this could, he could have both things in mind, not just lusting after what we see, but any sinful passion, uh, and probably more sexual in meaning there. And then in the new NIV, it says, uh, and the pride of life. And actually, that's a very literal translation. But that word life there is bios, as opposed to the one that, when, when they're talking about human life, zoe is more often used. And so why did he choose, he sh if he meant the pride of life like our lives, he would have used zoe. Why did he use bios? Because bios can often mean material possessions. And so I think uh, the older translation, actually, in the NIV, um, that boasting in what one has or does is probably more accurate there. He's talking about an arrogant trust in our own abilities, in our own possessions, in our own bank account, rather than trusting with God, in God. And actually, the wealth of the Western world can be a barrier to faith, can be a barrier to trust in God, because it's very tempting to trust our own efforts and our own abilities and our own bank accounts rather than to trust in God. And so he's saying that too is part of the way the world looks at life. And all of these things are wrong, but why are they wrong? He says that such attitudes and actions are not from God. They're from the world, which means ultimately they're from Satan. That's the first reason why they're wrong. The second reason why they're wrong is because this world is doomed. It's doomed to be destroyed. So if you love the world, if that's your deal, you're on a sinking ship. It's doomed. It will end. I love what Colin Cruz says. He says there is no future in worldliness. Literally, there's no future in it. Ladies, only three things are eternal. God, his word, and people. And it is only those who love God and therefore hate the world that will remain, that will abide, that will live with God forever. Now, John gives a really stark picture of the world. And I think sometimes we think, but is the world really that bad? I mean, how we live in America, you know? I mean, how bad is the world? Well, I would just say turn on the news. <laughs> or any sitcom, and you would probably find out. Are we really influenced by, say, what we watch on television? I would submit, and I'll give a personal example in a minute, that we are. I mean, is it really bad to watch, and I'm going to step on some toes here, so just you might want to pull your feet in now. <laughs> is it really that bad to watch, say, The Bachelor? I mean, I'm not going to, like, go get in the hot tub with the guy tomorrow night. So, you know, why is that so bad? Does that really have an impact on my life? Um, years ago, uh, I used to tease my grandmother 
because she had a, a um, soap opera that she liked to watch. And uh, Days of Our Lives. And I thought soap operas were the stupidest, most inane thing on the planet. And so my roommate got me hooked on Days of Our Lives in college. <laughs> and uh, I watched it through college, and then I got a real job, and so I couldn't watch it anymore. And then I had a baby. <clears throat> and I became a stay-at-home mom. And nap time was, you know, right there, and the TV was right there, and I began watching it again. And I know specifically the last day Amy Keezer ever watched a soap opera, and here was it. In the soap opera Days of Our Lives, there was a couple, Bo and Carly. And, and in true soap opera fashion, they loved each other, and something kept breaking them up. And they were never able, able to consummate their love because they'd get that close, and then, you know, somebody, Stefano or whatever his name was, would come barging in or whatever, and then they'd be torn apart. And then they, and they finally, it goes on and on for weeks that they're on this deserted island, and still things are keeping them. And, and I remember thinking, after, after they, they were able finally to consummate this relationship, my thought was, well, finally. And then I went, Amy, wow, that is so opposed to God and his word. Turned off the soap opera. I've never watched one since. Does it have an impact on us? Yes. Even if we don't realize what the impact is. And ladies, I think that those kinds of shows more than anything else, and I would put The Bachelor, sorry, at the top of the list, it gives us an unrealistic version of love and a worldly version of love and what a relationship's supposed to look like. And it's supposed to be love and kisses and hot tubs all the time. It's not. I've been married 28 years, and there are times when I just want to kick his little hiney, but I still love him, and I'm still committed to him. And that's what love is, not hot tubs, and it gives us a false version of that. And, and I think we are, we are being naive if we think it doesn't have an impact on us. I was going to play a commercial for you, and I was told that it was um, too risque. And I agree, it probably was. And probably some of you would have been, Amy Kiesa, why did you play that in Bible study? But those of you who have seen it need to back me up on this. The new Hardee's Thick Burger uh, barbecue commercial. We're watching, we're trying to watch the Husker game at Buffalo Wild Wings, the, the Husker-Miami game at Buffalo Wild Wings, because we don't have cable. And, uh, and this, although, you know, if we would have been watching it at home, same commercial would have come on. It just wouldn't have been on an 80-foot screen. And I'm sitting there with my 15-year-old. And this commercial comes on. If, you want, if, you're, if you're brave enough and you want to go to YouTube, just, just type it into YouTube and you'll see it. And you'll, trust me, trust me. It's pornographic. And it's these two women in black leather studded nothing. And they're sexually moving all over a truck and washing it and water. And there's a burger in there somewhere, but I don't know what it has to do about anything. And it is so sexual. Boom, don't look, Lane. And if you don't want to cover your husband's eyes, your kid's eyes, your dog's eyes, your own eyes, for heaven's sake, when you see something like that, something's wrong. We've lost a sense of the holy when we can look at that and be unaffected. That's the world. That's what the world loves. And if we love that, we can't love God. And that's what John is telling us. And I, I guarantee you, I absolutely guarantee you, if any of us were straight men, that commercial would not be innocuous. 
at all. And it, once it was in our minds, it would never leave. And that's a problem. In our culture, choosing to love, uh, to not love the world is an uphill battle. But we must fight that battle first and foremost in our own lives and with our own decisions. Because, as, as, and, and Gary Burge here is quoting David Wells in the first part of this, those who are sure pollsters, so like something like 90% of Americans say they believe in God, those who are sure pollsters of their belief in God's existence may nonetheless consider him less interesting than television, his commands less authoritative than their appetites for affluence and influence, his judgments no more awe-inspiring than the evening news, and his truth less compelling than the advertiser's sweet fog of flattery and lies. And then Gary Burge says, according to Wells, the church is in trouble, but barely knows it, because it has failed to discern the corrupting influence of the world, erect formidable boundaries, and make potent and compelling claims for the truth. Let's not be in trouble. Let's see the world as it really is and fight it. So here's the problem in his church. Dear children, this is the last hour, and as you have heard, the Antichrist is coming. Even now, many Antichrists have come. This is how we know it is the last hour. They went out from us, but they did not really belong to us. For if they had belonged to us, they would have remained with us, but their going showed that none of them belonged to us. So he says, this is how we know it's the last hour, and there's urgency in his pen here. This is a much more serious warning than what he's given before. But what does he mean by last hour? As I uh, wrote in the lesson, Gary Burge says, to, to put it frankly, quite a few hours have passed since this letter was written, and the end still has not come. So how can he call it the last hour? Well, first of all, when he says the last hour, he means the time, uh, uh, the time in history since the first coming of Christ. That is the last hour, biblically. What the Bible teaches is that Jesus came to defeat sin and death, and there would be time, God would give time, not wanting anyone to perish. Do not count God's slowness as, you know, as, as slowness, but God wants none to perish, and there would be time for people to come to know Christ. But things would, get, would be bad, and they would get worse, and eventually Jesus will return and time will end. And all that time from the first coming of Christ to the second coming of Christ is the last hour. John here is speaking more theologically than chronologically. Remember that a thousand years is but a day to God. God lives apart from time, above time. We think, seriously, more than 2,000 years? That's an hour? Yeah, an hour, if, if a thousand years is but a day, you do the math. Uh, so it, it is the last hour from that perspective. Um, and so uh, as Dr. Burge puts it, the first coming of Jesus brought a change in the eons. A new era began. And essentially, uh, to say that we are living in the last hour is to say that all that is left uh, to happen for history to end, for history to culminate, is for Jesus to return. That was true in John's day, and that is true today. We are now still living in the last hour. And the Bible teaches us that things will get worse on this earth as the time for Jesus' return approaches. 
We can't know the time. We shouldn't try to know the time. Anyone who says he's coming next Wednesday is, well, I don't know that he's wrong. He's wrong to say that (laughs) because Jesus said you can't. You can't know the time or the day, but you can see the signs. You can know that it is the last hour. In fact, John gives us two signs here, and I'm just going to say what they are so I don't forget because of your question back there. The first one is we know it's the last hour, and we know that the Antichrist is coming because these Antichrists have come. Uh, so that's the first thing. And the, the other reason we know is because they were part of the church. What's happening in his church, John sees as the second reason, that they were part of the church and they left the church. And that split of the church, that crisis in the church, is also another last hour sort of thing. Um, so constantly, or so, so excuse me, um, Consequently, John is reminding his readers that the concentration of evil they are now experiencing fits the formula announced by Jesus and his apostles for the end time. So what about this thing with the Antichrist and the Antichrist? Well, the Bible teaches that at some point um, in, during the last hour, a world leader and Antichrist, and I would tend to capitalize that, but John doesn't, um, I don't know that they had capital letters, so I don't know. But anyway, uh, that, that a world leader will emerge and he will be, or she will be, the Antichrist. That is what John is alluding to in verse 18, and it is, I don't have the verses for you, but that is the consistent teaching of uh, Scripture, not just the New Testament. But then he says already Antichrists have come, not the anti. he's not saying the Antichrist has come, Antichrists have come. Who are those people? That is anyone who denies Jesus or teaches something opposed to his gospel. That is an antichrist. Meaning he or she is opposed to Christ. The secessionists were antichrists. They had been members of John's church, but now now they are not. They have left and they were never truly believers. And they've left to propagate heresy. Such antichrists and the havoc they wreak on the church are proof, John says, that they were and we are living in the last days. But he says we have protection from this. He says, but you, you're not an antichrist. You have an anointing from the Holy One, and all of you know the truth. I do not write to you because you do not know the truth, but because you do know it and because no lie comes from the truth. So he says, our first protection from these antichrists is our anointing from the Holy One. So John here is equipping the saints. He's telling them, let me tell you how you can be protected from them. And our first protection is our anointing from the Holy One. The Holy One is Jesus, and the anointing is the Holy Spirit who indwells every believer Jesus said in the Gospel of John, I'm going, but after I go, I will send a helper, a paraclete, by the way, a parakletos, an advocate, to be with you. And he meant the Holy Spirit. He sent the Holy Spirit to dwell within us. Jesus lived among us. The Holy Spirit lives in us. And it is the Holy Spirit that gives us knowledge and helps us discern the truth. If you want to know more about that, the Gospel of John, chapters 14 to 16, Jesus talks a lot about that. 
Any teaching that deviates from the gospel of Jesus is not from the Spirit. It's from Satan. But John is saying more here than just know the truth. He is saying that. And, and knowing the truth, knowing the truth of God's word, the truth of the gospel is, is vital, is so important. But John is saying more. He's saying that we have the one who leads us in, uh, in that truth living inside of us. We have the Holy Spirit, and he helps us know the truth. So the spirit within us helps us understand as we study God's word, helps us understand the truth. And that's how we know false teaching when we hear it. That is our protection from false teaching. And then he's going to talk a little bit about the heresy that was being preached by these guys. Who is the liar? It is whoever denies that Jesus is the Christ. Such a person is the Antichrist, denying the Father and the Son. No one who denies the Son has the Father. Whoever acknowledges the Son has the Father also. You know, we tend to look at, um, they denied the Messiah. That was the first, uh, their, the first part of the false, false teaching. It's all about Christology. Uh, but how did they deny the Messiah? It's hard to know for sure, but we tend to think that someone who denies Jesus as Messiah is saying Jesus was just an earthly man. He wasn't the Messiah. He wasn't God. He was just a good teacher. But back in John's day, there was actually a different heresy and probably what these people were saying was, Jesus was the Messiah. He was fully God. He just wasn't really a man like you and I are. He wasn't a person. He wasn't fully human like you and I are. Um, in short, they denied the incarnation, that God came to earth as a man in Jesus Christ. And John is blunt. He says, anyone who teaches such things is a liar. That is how central the incarnation is to our faith. But why? Why is it such a big deal? Well, first of all, it's a big deal because God entered our world and made himself known. This, this, is, this is critical, that we can know God. This means that the truth is not a matter of, is, excuse me, is a matter of experience. It, it, it's not, excuse me, it's not a matter of experience, but a matter of history. God came to earth in the form of Jesus, and if you've seen Jesus, you've seen God. It's not about God being this ethereal thing, and it's the universe, and the universe is going to reward me in the universe. No, God came to earth as a man, and he can be known. We can experience him, but we also can know him, objectively know who God is, and not just some perspective of who we may think God is. Secondly, it's important because the incarnation is essential to our understanding of salvation. If Jesus was not really a man, he could not have fully taken on our experience and die for humans. In other words, if he did not truly bear our humanity to the cross, he could not die for our human sins. On the other hand, if he wasn't fully God... He could not die for our sins because he would have his own sins to carry to the cross. I'm going to mess up this quote, but, but, but I love this quote, and this is, this is a close proximity to it. Jesus had to be human in order to die for humans, and Jesus had to be God in order to die for our sin because had he been only human, he would have been sinful, and he couldn't have died for our sins if he had his own. Well, I'm going to skip to the ending uh, on... Um, well, I'll just, I'll just say this 
quickly. Verses 24 through 27, I won't read it, but what John is saying here is anchor yourselves in Scripture. Anchor yourselves in the truth of Scripture. John there is probably talking about his own gospel, but ladies, we have the whole 66 uh, books of the Bible. Anchor ourselves in that. And then he's also saying, be led by the Spirit. Allow the Holy Spirit to guide you. The Spirit will help you discern what is true and what is false. And then he says, you don't need a teacher. What? I'm out of a job, if that's true. Um, He's specifically speaking about the secessionists. You don't need them to teach you. You know what is true. I'm writing to you because you know what is true. He doesn't say hey, I'm the authority here, I'm the apostle, not that he doesn't use his own authority. You know why? Because authority isn't in human beings. Ladies, I have zero authority to teach God's word, zero. But I teach God's word authoritatively because the authority is in the scriptures, not in me. Scripture is authoritative, not me. Um, So... Essentially what John is saying here is that we have to remember, we need to remember. The concept of remembering in scripture is everywhere. We're told to remember who we once were. We're told to remember what Christ has done. We're told to remember who we are in Christ. But here John says, remember, you have an anointing of the Holy Spirit. So hold fiercely to the message of the gospel. That is our most important defense against false teaching. I've used this analogy before, but years ago, before there were like little watermarks and money and stuff like that, and you could write a little pen across it, the way tellers learned to tell a true dollar bill from a counterfeit dollar bill was by never seeing a counterfeit one. They used, they, they, they felt and they smelled and they saw real money over and over and over and over again so that when something false came up, they went, whoa, that's not right. I know that's not right. I know the truth so well that I know what's false when I see it. And that's what John's telling us to do. We need to know God's word. We need to know God. We need to be so filled with the spirit that we know falsehood when we see it. We must become immersed in the truth of the gospel. As as Tim Wiebe would say, we need to marinate in scripture. For it is as we are led by the spirit, uh, as we are led by the spirit in the truth of the gospel that we can discern and defeat spiritual lives, lies in our lives, then we will be loving God and not the world. Let's pray. Father God, thank you for your truth. May we so know it, may we so understand it, that we will immediately see lies for what they really are. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks, ladies.